0: Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Today's guest is Jeffrey Gerard, who writes thrillers, historicals, and dark speculative fiction. His YA thriller Project Kane, about cloned serial killers, was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award. He has a BA in English Literature from Washington College and an MA in Creative Writing from Miami University, where he is now working on an MFA. Jeff joined me to talk about how parting ways with his dream agent wasn't the end of his career and finding his start in publishing through small indie presses. Adriana D'Amato sneaks out of her house to take violin lessons from Antonio Vivaldi. When she falls in love with Venice's red priest, both their lives are turned upside down by their secret relationship in Alyssa Palombos, the violinist of Venice. I always ask guests about their agent hunt. You've changed agents, and I think it would be great to talk about how parting with your first agent wasn't necessarily the end of the world for you and why you made the decision to switch.
1: I first got my agent. Uh, I did it the traditional way where I made my dream list. And honest to goodness, this guy was number one at the top. He he got big deals. He represented a bunch of authors that I really liked. I went for this guy first, and he pulled me off the slush pile. Got me a really nice deal with the Simon Schuster and the two Kane books. And and things were going good. I still recommend him very much to other writers. Truthers, I was working on Truthers at the time. There was a switch in agencies, and he left the agency uh, that we were both with. And I sort of followed him out into the hinterlands, looking to find the right agency. And I knew he would. I knew he'd land somewhere great. He's, he's a really good agent. When he finally landed somewhere, I think he was trying to get a big deal for his new agency. And I think he knew correctly that Truthers wasn't going to be a huge money-making deal. You know, it's kind of a weird book. It's about 9-11 conspiracy stuff. That's not, not exactly going to get big figures from New York publishers. I wanted to go out with something bigger. And I think he would have waited for me to write that book, but I don't want to write that book. We parted. I said, I don't want to wait anymore. I got to go with truth. So I went back to my original agency you know, sort of tail between legs and said, hey guys, you know what? And they're like, welcome back. They brought me back immediately. They said, we totally understand. I was just being loyal to the guy who pulled me off the slush pile. And they got back completely. They brought me back. Five deals with them since. So we're, we're, we're doing good. Big takeaway for me and for, that I tell other writers is, there are plenty of agents out there. You got to find one who's into whatever it is you're working on. He, he or she is out there.
0: That's definitely true. I also think it's interesting because of your loyalty to your own manuscript. You knew that you could have stayed with this agent and written another book that was more to his taste as far as being a larger sale like your first book was. But you really wanted to get this particular book out there. And I think there is a timeliness issue, even though obviously the event happened a long time ago, in terms of the way teenagers think, before it's completely out of the lexicon, I think that book needed to get out somewhat soon. Was that your thinking similarly?
1: To be honest, no, I just needed another book out, you know what I mean? Like, Mindy McGinnis is putting out her 14th book, and and I'm like, dude, it's been three years, and, and, you know, the, the, the Kane stuff was great, but immediately following that, publishers were fired, editors quit, editors left publishing. Like I was in rooms with strangers. And so the woman who said, hey, we can't wait for your next book, get it done. All of a sudden, she wasn't at the company anymore. <laughs> so the new person in charge wasn't exactly asking for the next book. And if that happens, two, three years can go by in a hurry. It was more like, God, Jeff, get a, get a damn book out.
0: I think it's interesting. And it's something that we haven't talked about before on the show is that In order to keep your momentum in your career, you want to have a book out a year, one a year, or else your audience may forget you. And so when you do have those absences that are created, when an editor leaves, sometimes an entire imprint will fold. All of those authors are then orphaned, and their cheerleaders within the publishing industry are gone.
1: Gone.
0: Yeah, it's hard to get a book out if there's no one for you to hand it to.
1: You're starting from scratch again, because unless you had some huge, giant deal the first time, which for most of us isn't the case, you're almost from square one again. you got to go out with sort of hat in hand and say, here's another project. I, I need another team rooting for me kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it happens a lot. Most of us have had agent switches, editor switches, publishing house switches. I've been through four editors at two different houses so far. And yeah, I've been putting out books, but I mean, technically I've only been publishing for four years and I've still had four editor switches. Right. So it's something that you don't realize before you actually get into the business. There are so many little things like that, that can greatly affect that you have no no control over
1: i think movies sort of throw that off you know our idea of what an editor is and our publisher and agent plus the old timers i just things are different in new york right now you know i've had the same editor for 20 years there are some authors that that have that but as you just said fewer and fewer yeah
0: definitely Turnover is, uh, well, of authors and of editors and of styles and of genres and of trends. It's hard to stay relevant. Okay, you have also worked with small presses for anthologies as well as middle grade chapter books. So talk a little bit about working with a small press versus a large one because you've done both and what you feel are the pros and cons of each.
1: All right, so small press for me worked because I didn't have the guts yet, or I wasn't ready yet, or I didn't have an agent. And, you know, I'd sent some stuff out to the bigger publishers, and, of course, without an agent, you know, nothing's coming back. I had this idea for a book, and, you know, you get the Writer's Digest book, and you find these smaller publishers who are looking for very specific things, and I pitched, it was the Tales of the Jersey Devil book. I'm like, okay, here's this publisher that specializes in New Jersey history and East Coast stuff. Like, this is perfect. I know about the Jersey Devil. I could write a book about that. Uh, and I did everything you're supposed to do, the sample chapters and the outline and the lovely little cover letter. An advantage of the smaller publishers is it's great practice for everything you're about to do for the big ones. You know, you're writing your first cover letter. You're looking at your first contract. No one's helping you. You're looking at the contract. You're doing your first book events. So, I mean, the book sold and whatever, a four-figure deal. But damn it, I sold a book. I had a book out in the world. I was invited to do book signings. And that is a learning experience as well. Your first book signing is nothing like your 20th. You will know. You, you learn a ton when to you do those, like how to behave and how to act and how to sell a damn book. You know, when you're sitting at a table and no one knows who you are, it was a huge learning process. So, you know, there's another advantage of small press. They sell 5,000 copies and they're beside themselves. They're like, oh, this is great. Oh, okay. Well, let's do another book. Let's do another book. And then the third time I said, I want a two book deal because I wanted to see what that was like, you know. That's a different animal, and you learn a little bit. So I think the smaller publishers are good. I feel like you learn a lot. I feel like you're more hands-on with what's going on. I learned a lot with the smaller publishers, and I still think they're an outlet for certain projects. For instance... I have the rights back to the Jersey Devil book. Well, guess what? Simon Schuster probably doesn't want that book. So guess who I'm hitting? I'm bugging you know, New Jersey publishers. And, and I'm reaching out again, uh, different publishers this time, and seeing if they'd be interested in reprinting, and I'm getting some nibbles. So the anthology, unless you're a huge name author, no one wants a short story connection. I went to a boutique, smaller publisher, Apex Publishing—they specialize in science fiction, hard dark fantasy. They've been up for a ton of awards. They win Nebulas and Stoker awards and all sorts of wonderful stuff. So that's my people's. So I contacted the editor and said, "Hey, you know, I'm thinking about putting." He said, "Absolutely, let's do it." So you know, he's not looking for thirty thousand sales. He'll, he'll be happy if it sells two thousand copies. They'll make a bunch of money. I'll get my writing out in people's hands, and that was that's that's, that's another advantage.
0: Mm -hmm. So when you are aiming at the smaller publishers just to get your feet wet, like you're saying, you're not necessarily in it for huge amounts of money. You're in it to get your feet wet and learn how to do certain things like your contract and your marketing and even like signings.
1: I think that's what it became. I mean, I don't know if that was intentional at the time. I just, like I said, I don't. Know, I don't know if I was "quote unquote" ready for the big boys. I just, I reached out with this idea. I said, "Well, let me start here." And you know, first I did short stories, and then I did a small press, and then bigger press, and then I was ready for getting the big agent and going for the big publishers, kind of thing. Regional publishers—they're not getting me in Barnes and Nobles in uh, California, but in every little mom-and-pop shop up and down the Jersey Shore. They had my books. That was cool. And that was important to me. You know, Each one of these publishers has a different thing they're good at. And that's part of what I'm learning, too, is sort of distribution. So the regional guys got me in the mom and pop shops and Simon Schuster gets me in Barnes and Noble and Lerner, who does Truthers. They got me in pretty much every school library and all the libraries in the country. The new one, Mary Rose, that's coming out with Adaptive. I'm not going to get into any libraries with that, probably, maybe. But what they do is they have a special deal with Barnes & Noble. I will be in every Barnes & Noble in the country. My goal is to make the publisher happy. Even the Truthers book. My local Barnes & Noble wasn't carrying it. I'm like, God, I'm allowed to curse right? I'm like, God damn it. My local Barnes & Noble doesn't have my— I'm like, well, we're not modeled to carry. I wrote a whiny little email to my editor, and I said, does anyone have this book and she's like, yes, 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 shut up. And she, she listed all the barns and she's like, our local Barnes and Noble, I called my parents, they're eight states away, theirs has it. So she sent me a lesson and she said, look, it's out there, it's just your place didn't have it. And then she said, which I really needed to hear, she said, look, we're happy with sales. If sales are where we wanted, or a little better, we're good, we're happy with what the book is doing. I just want publishers happy. They're your boss and that's how you get the second book. And third and fourth and seventh.
0: Up next, publishing short stories as a way to learn craft and the art of hand-selling. Allie promised herself no more resurrecting the dead. But when she finds her crush dumped on her doorstep without a pulse, she knows his memories could help find a villain out for her blood. It's too bad bringing back the dead can cost you your life. Vile Things by Leah Clifford. I was talking to Liz Coley this morning for a different episode, and we were talking about short stories and submitting them to lit mags and genre mags, and I think you have done that as well, right? I have, yeah. Do you recommend that as a way to step into the pool?
1: I do. I mean, it worked for me. It's how I learned how to write, I think. Before I sold a book, I probably wrote and sold 70 short stories. So I tried a lot of everything. I think you learn a lot by writing short stories. Again, I think you get your feet wet by seeing contracts and working with publishers, working with editors and getting that back and forth, starting to do your first social marketing and interacting with readers and stuff like that. I think you get a lot of that through publishing short stories. I wanted to do the old school way of sort of honing my craft, quote unquote, whatever the hell that means. Yeah, you know, learning how to tell a story and trying different voices and different Ways of telling a story. And so that way, when I did, let's say, Cain's Blood, which has like 40 different points of view and all sorts of different things that I'm doing in each of the chapters, I, I was ready to do that. And I probably wouldn't have been if I hadn't written short stories for five years first.
0: Do you think that having those publication credits to your name for short stories and small presses helped get a big name agent's attention?
1: Not at all. Not at all. No. They didn't care. Dude, they don't care at all. Your agents. They want a book that they can sell tomorrow. That's it. They don't give a shit. They don't care what you look like, what you've done before. Now, look, obviously, if you're writing a book about, you know, some some CIA spy and you used to be a CIA spy or something, fine. I get it. I'm saying, for you know, the average book, whenever you're working on your new epic fantasy, unless you're an elf, they don't care. They didn't know. Like, I was all happy. You know, authors, we check our websites like, ooh, I sent it out. Let's see if people from New York are hitting my website. My agents took me on. They had no, they'd never been to my website. They had no idea what other books I'd done. They didn't know what I looked like. They didn't care. All they knew was that clone serial killers sounded like a cool idea. And then I knew how to write, like, that's it. Everything else, they didn't, they didn't care. And I actually find that like kind of cool in a way to land the agent you want to land that publisher you want. You just got to have a kick-ass book. I think the other stuff is good. I think you learn a lot, uh, but they want a kick-ass book.
0: I wanna backtrack a little bit because you were talking about your very first book signing. Just the act of selling, table selling, because a lot of people oh. Yeah, I know. A lot of a lot of aspiring authors don't realize this, but when you say, Yes, I will do a book signing, yes, I will attend your festival, you are sitting behind a card table in a folding chair with a stack of your books in front of your face, and that's it, eight hours. Yep. And that's what you do. And you have to be able to sell your book face-to-face.
1: Horrifying.
0: It is very scary, especially if you're not outgoing. You don't have that problem. I don't have that problem. But a lot of people choke on it.
1: Well, let's face it. We're writers. Even though you and I can go certainly outgoing when in public or when we have to, most writers are sort of introverts by nature. I mean, that's why, why we gravitate towards reading and writing. Again, I, get, I can put on a good show, but I will say— My first signing that I definitely remember, I was at a Barnes and Noble. We had a stack of like 30 of my Pirates book, Tales of the Atlantic Pirates. And there are 30 of them sitting there. And an hour goes by. The second hour is going by. So I've now been there almost two hours. I haven't sold a single, like my sister-in-law bought, she showed up and bought a copy. So I have 39 books sitting there. As you said, I'm sitting at a table like a dork. No one's ever heard of me. No one cares. I'm just sitting there like an idiot. Uh, and then the embarrassment, and I know the booksellers, they feel it too. I mean, they feel bad for us too. I felt so bad for the booksellers who brought me in because I'm like, guys, I'm like, I'm not selling anything. This is terrible. So what I did that first time and what I've been able to do ever since is you have to be that that ass, man. I stood up. If anyone ever sees me at a sign, you will really see me sitting down. I stand almost the entire time and I learned that from that that first terrible outing stood the hell up instead of sitting there like a the goof with my little books in my pen. I stood up and I just started calling people out. Hey, do you like pirates? Like, hey, you look like someone who matey. Get over here. Like all the cheesiest, most ridiculous. I felt like a fucking moron. No exaggeration. I sold like 16 books in 20 minutes. That's what you have to do. So if you're going to sign up for those kinds of events, you stand the heck up. You don't sit there like the little introvert writer that you are. My strongest suggestion is get your butt up, engage, call people out. Obviously, you don't want to be obnoxious, but be friendly. Hey, here's what this book's about. Hey, are you interested in this? And it is amazing how many people walk over and actually give you the time of day and sometimes even their money. Lesson learned.
0: No, I absolutely agree with you. If you sit down, you're not active and you're not engaging. And I always liken it to the dog pound When you go into the dog pound and there's one that's (laughs)
1: like... (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Yeah. It's like yes. the dog that's just like meh, you know, that's sitting in the corner. <laughs> nobody is going to go take that dog. Now, like, total. No time, one's going to take that dog. I would take that dog. Like, when I go to the dog pound, I come away with the dog that has like three legs and mange and he's missing an eye and he has ticks. But you're right. When you're table selling, you have got to put yourself out there and you got to make eye contact and you got to say hi to strangers. And that is not in the lexicon of most authors. And if you want to be good at this, you have to learn it. It's not easy. I come home exhausted.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: But you are also a teacher. I think it's important to point out. So you are in front of other human beings all day. Do you think that that helps you?
1: I can get in front of a group of people and put on a pretty good show. I'll give you a good juggling show and and do what I have to do to keep your attention. Put me in front of a group. I'm okay.
0: Yeah, I agree. I have a switch in me that can be flipped and I'm learning how to flip it. I find it to be more difficult if I'm driving to a faraway destination and I've been alone in my car for three or four hours. Makes sense. And I'm completely introverted and I'm thinking about whatever I'm thinking about. Who knows? Could be anything.
1: Three-legged dogs. Yeah, exactly.
0: And it's like I'm just being Mindy. And then I get out of the car and I have to be Mindy McGinnis. Right. I actually have to think about it that way. It's like, okay, you're Mindy McGinnis now. And it's the weirdest thing, if there is a sign out front, like if I'm at a library and it says, whatsoever welcomes author Mindy McGinnis, that actually helps me. It's like I have dissociative identity disorder or something. I'm like, oh, yeah, wake her up. Come on, bring her out!
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: I actually find that helpful.
1: (laughs) That's funny. I'm thinking about your new book, so it makes sense.
0: Yeah, I guess guess that (laughs) that does actually Coming up, author branding, what does it mean, does it matter, in being a middle-aged dude on Twitter. Tell us about author branding. This is something that we get thrown at us a lot as authors that isn't necessarily explained that often to those of us that are aspiring. So first of all, if you could, talk about what you think branding is. And then, oh. no, okay, you don't have to do that. <laughs> no, no, no,
1: that's fine. No, I'm just going to keep going. Go ahead. Okay,
0: explain branding, and then I want you to explain why you're such an interesting case, because you have such a divergent amount of material. So first talk about branding, and then I will break down all the different stuff that you have produced.
1: Uh, oh, <laughs> Look, I don't know if I'm the right person to be asking. I'm, I'm doing one of two things. I'm either painting myself into a corner in which I'm going to be completely screwed in a couple years, or I'm doing the right thing.
0: You and I are probably the worst two people to even have this conversation because I don't do a good job of branding either.
1: I don't know what the Jeffrey Gerard brand is. And, I you know, would I be selling better if I had one? You know, is this something I can make? Look, here's what Jeffrey Gerard does. And that's the last time I talk about myself in the third person. But we're talking branding. <laughs> so, what are we going to do? Hey, sometimes he writes books for teenagers. I'm a high school teacher. And there are certain topics that come to mind. I'm like, damn it, I want to write this book for my students. And so I'm going to write books and stories for young adults sometimes. I'm also a guy who leans dark and likes thrillers and horror. And so I'm going to write those sometimes. And I've managed to sell both of those. Um, I'm also a guy who loves historicals and nonfiction. So the book I'm working on right now, Parker Collins, it'll come out in January. Next next, like 2019, is a creative nonfiction book set in feudal Japan. Today, I'm going to be, uh, under a pen name, I'm going to be writing some some other types of books. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, so, But that's under a pen name, so that's different. Now, so Jeffrey Bard writes teens, thrillers, historicals, uh, nonfiction sometimes. I, is that going to work for me? So far, I mean... Deals keep coming. You know, you always hear these horror stories. You're like, well, the bookstores won't buy you because King's Blood only sold this many copies. I'm like, well, yeah, but my samurai book sold this many copies. So now what are you going to do? And then maybe Barnes & Noble has to think about it. I I don't know. Like I said, five years from now, I'll know whether or not I painted myself into this terrible corner. If I'm writing so many different kinds of things that I'm just going to be one of those authors who can – put on different hats and do different types of writing uh, depending on what I'm interested in at the time or what a publisher might want. There have been all sorts of discussions and talks in the last like year or so on things that I could have done and, and I, I think that has to do with the, you know the English major and I was in advertising and marketing for 10 years. I can write anything I, I really don't I can go mercenary. I write anything for anyone I can write in 20 different styles. I'm, I'm not saying you know this isn't me claiming I'm a great writer, but I am an adaptive writer.
0: It's one of those questions that we're told to think about. I understand the idea that your readership will come back to you for the same thing over and over. Obviously, this has worked for James Patterson, Sue Grafton, yeah, you know, Janet Ivanovich. but it might not be what I want to write, and I might not always have a story that fits into the niche that's been built for me. So my first two were post-apoc. I wrote historical. I wrote contemporary. I wrote fantasy. To be honest, my readers aren't always following me. That's for sure. And I'll have reviews, which I typically don't look at my reviews, but every now and then I will. And there will be reviews that are just scathing because they loved something else. And then they picked up this. And they're like, what the hell is this? And I'm like, well, this is another part of me. You don't have to love everything I do. Someone else loved that and hated the one you love.
1: Patricia Cornwell, my favorite book of hers is, of course, the nonfiction. It's the Jack the Ripper one. I think that's a brilliant book. I love that she took, I think, like a year or two of her life off, you know, making millions of dollars. She's like, you know what? I'm going to set that aside because I really want to do this. I love that book. I think it's beautifully written. I think she did her own—I mean, it's just a great book. So it would have been a shame if she hadn't done that.
0: I think that if the author really cares about what they're writing, then it shows. And if I had written four more post-apocalyptic books after I wrote uh, Drink and Dust— Number one, they would have tanked because the genre was dead, but number two, they wouldn't have been well-written because I was done with that.
1: Right. And uh, I don't know your numbers or if you even want to talk about them. I imagine, dude, Female the Species like did great on all fronts. Critically, I, I have to assume on sales and then things like that, and that's that's the book you wanted to write that year, so that's important.
0: Yeah, it was, and it did. It did stand fine. I mean, I didn't hit the list or anything like that, but... I have done well enough. Encouraging, I guess, is the word. Um, and I know that the publisher is happy with those sales. But like you said, that is your overall goal, is that your publisher is happy with your sales.
1: And as far as brand, anyway, dude, I'm wretched at social media. I'm sure sometime during this interview, I'm going to say something people are going to get mad at. Middle-aged dude, I'm not good at Twitter. Believe me, I'll see people on Twitter. I'm like, oh, you douche. Why are you putting up pictures of... And But then they have... 20,000 followers. And like, I just, I'm not good at stuff like that. So, you know, part of your brand is sort of, I'm always telling writers sort of pick what you're good at and I'm not good at social media. So I focus on, I try to do school visits and colleges and I try to talk to, you know, writers as much as possible. And those are my people. That's where I'm comfortable. Maybe that's me being a teacher.
0: Well, that's good though. I mean,
1: you know, your strengths. Yes. And I think that's something that every writer should do. You're not going to be able to do all of it. You don't have the time to do all of it. So find the ones that A, are your strengths, and then B, the ones that actually bring you joy. Since most of us aren't going to become millionaires at this, part of being a writer, you should have some fun. And I have fun visiting colleges and talking to a room of college writers. Like, that's where I get joy. So if I'm not going to become a millionaire writing, which is probably the case, um, to add a little bit of joy to it by marketing yourself. in in a way that suits, you know, your sort of skills and interests becomes more important.
0: That can be my pull quote for this interview. Add a little joy.
1: Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) It'll take
0: off some of your sharper edges, Jeff. (laughs) Nah. Lastly, the interesting marketing push behind Jeff's first traditional releases and the difficulty of finding shelf space for a book that can be viewed as controversial. Let's talk about your first traditional release because it did something really different, which I thought was super cool. Your publisher released Project Kane, which is the story of serial killer clones told from the POV of the Jeffrey Dahmer clone while simultaneously releasing Kane's Blood, which is an adult thriller that tells the same story from the POV of a former Black Ops adult who gets pulled into the action. So that is really different. This was the same story from a different point of view, and they released one from the adult and one from the teens. And quite honestly, I thought it was really smart. I don't know how well it worked marketing-wise, but I thought it was cool.
1: Simon Schuster decided to get in a fight with Barnes & Noble right before these books came out. That's right. Project, yeah, But whatever. Project Kane did well. Kane's blood, I think, took a bath. They're never going to get their money back. But you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, no, it was a cool idea. I have a feeling if my last name were King or Patterson or, or Stein, it would have worked really, really well and people would have flipped out. At the same time, I can't be a jerk about this. I was a first-time novelist. It was paid well. You know, I had trailers on, on EW.com and I was in Publishers Weekly. I had interviews and in magazines that I don't think a lot of first time thriller writers usually get. So did the sales come through? Eh, no, no, I want to say so. Um, now, from a marketing point of view, did it get me a little extra buzz than I would have gotten had I just put out a single book? Yes, I, I think I definitely got more attention by doing it that way. And that's that's why you get agents. They had the guts to go out there. They made their little dream list of here are 20 publishers that can handle both an adult book and a teen book. And they went out and they, they worked it and they, you know, they got it done at the auction and they got the darn thing done. So that's worth 15%.
0: Yeah, for sure. So did you write a YA book and bring it to them or did you written the adult book and brought it to them and they said, hey, why don't you flip this?
1: So I started with a YA book. I sent them a YA book because I was writing a book for my students about serial killers, as one does. And they said, "Uh, we think this would work better as an adult book. So take this away. You're a good writer. We like the idea. High concept. Love it. We'll make this an adult thriller. So I went away for about five, six months, and I wrote Cain's Blood. they hadn't even taken me on yet. This is how much I wanted these guys to be my agency. I went away for five, six months. I wrote Kane's Blood and came back and said, well, here, here you go, guys. And they said, perfect. This is what we want. We're taking you on as a client. Uh, we're going to sell this as, as an adult thriller. And then in the exact same phone call said, and they, I swear they said it almost in this way. They said, you know, have you considered making this a, a YA novel, you know, or would you consider? And I'm like, guys, do you, remember, you don't remember how you met me six months ago? And then that's when Project Kane happened. And the, the idea was... To go away, and if it was going to be a YA novel, to really look at it in a different way needed to be something different, which is why you get the Jeffrey Dahmer clone voice. It's a teenage kid that some people love and some people hate. When I mean people, I mean readers. It had to have an unusual voice. Otherwise, there was no point in doing it. Otherwise, as you just said, it would have been a stripped-down version of the adult book, and that's not what it is. Instead, it's a very different story from the point of view of this particular teenager, as opposed to the adult book, which is more of a traditional thriller. There's probably a dozen different points of view in there. And once I found that new voice, I had to go off and spend a little bit more time with the actual Jeffrey Dahmer, listening to recordings and reading interviews and really listening to his voice. Then I felt comfortable going back and creating that teen book. And as I said, then then my agents who had the idea, they went out and got it done.
0: That's really cool. I still think it's cool. Like whether it worked or not, I think it was a neat try at something different. Indeed. I want to talk about Truthers some more in depth. All right. So it deals with the 9-11 conspiracy. You said a little bit before about how the new agency that your old agent had gone to had cold feet about the topic. You were lucky enough to have your old agency still be interested so, were you worried when it came time to take this out there that you were going to have the same reaction from publishers?
1: Look, it's 9 11 conspiracy stuff. It's a well balanced book, just to get that out there, according to Publishers Weekly and then and, and this classic school journal, whatever that gets called. Well, I always forget what they're called. What are they called? Come on, Mindy. Yeah.
0: School Library Journal.
1: School Library Journal. Thank yeah. <laughs> you. School Library Journal. I love you guys. Thank you so much. Publishers Weekly and School Library Journal. They loved it. Look, it's a very balanced book.
0: It is. No, I agree with you entirely. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I blurbed it because I... Yeah, you it, that's right. I, I blurbed it. Um, so I was like, thank yeah, you. you're welcome. I'm not going to lie to you. When you asked me to read it, I was like, yeah, of course I'll read it. But inside I was like, I really hope this is balanced because if it's not, I'm not going to put my name on it. And then I was like, wow, he actually did a really good job with not making this into a, you know, Mel Gibson picking up copies of The Catcher in the Rye type of thing. I thought it was really well done. So yeah, I mean, we definitely need to throw that out there that it's not a crazy conspiracy book. It presents both sides. Evenly.
1: Yes. That said, New York publishers, which is where the where where the where the big folk are, dude, that's they've earned that. That's that is in their soul. Of course. I got a letter from one editor who said, "quote unquote," they literally ran for my life that day. Mm. It was basically, I don't care who wrote this book, I'm not getting anywhere near it. You got to respect that. As I said, if if you're a New Yorker. You can think about that book. Whatever you want, you've earned it. We got letters and responses from all sorts of publishers. Send us his next book. You know what I mean? Like, I can clearly write. This is a great thriller, but on the 9-11 stuff. Uh, Learner Books, who, who is in with the schools. And lo and behold, they're, they're out in uh, Minnesota. So they're a big publisher, but they're just not based in New York. So I think there's less of that personal connection and that for them, 15 years has gone by, so they were a little more open, I think, to approaching the book and looking at what it was trying to do and what it could be. And, yeah, we're all pretty happy with it.
0: Now, all that being said, you get through the gatekeeper of an agent and an agency, you get a publisher, and now you have to get shelf space. Yeah. And you have a—your cover is The Two Towers, Yes. So how did that go? I know you had trouble placing it. So can you talk about that a, a little bit more?
1: I said I went to my local bookstore, and my own Barnes & Noble didn't have it. And I had a hissy fit, and I went to—I don't know, is hissy fit, is that offensive to someone? Hissies? I don't even know what that means.
0: No, you are You have long enough hair. Your hair is long enough that you're allowed to have a hissy fit.
1: Parson words. I don't, I don't I don't. even know what a hissy is.
0: You've had them. You've had them. I've seen you have them. Sorry.
1: Oh! Oh awesome. Alright, feel oh, good. So and and I and I and that's that's why I cut my hair. I got tried to get rid of that. So I, I all that you cut your I, hair. No, no, I don't know, I don't even, whatever. It'll come back. What am I yeah. gonna do?
0: No, no, I really do think that your brand was your curls for a long time.
1: <laughs> the system's the system. There's not all I can do is write another book. Too out of my control. So I worry less and less.
0: Yeah, that's the truth. As you get more into the process, you learn what you do and do not have control over. Yes, if you physically go and visit your local booksellers and say, hey, I'm a local author. And my book is out. It does help. Yeah. I have found that if you walk in and you say, I'm a local author with Harper Collins or with Carol Rhoda. Yeah. That helps because if you just say, I'm a local author, they're going to assume that you're self-pubbed and <laughs> yes. most bookstores are not going to carry you. Right. So you just, if you are traditionally pubbed and you're looking for shelf space, you have to announce your publisher along with your name, maybe in front of it.
1: You're right. And, and, they're, and if you do that, yeah, you're, they're, they're usually pretty cool.
0: All right, so lastly, I want you to tell us about what you have coming up next because, like you said before, you have multiple projects up your sleeve, all of them a little bit different, which is cool. So talk about what you have coming up next and what you're working on.
1: Up next is Mary Rose is a uh, psychological thriller. Uh, It's a ghost story slash thriller that comes out in October. And see, there you go, just like we were talking about. That will be available, period, in every Barnes & Noble in the country. Now, it won't be available anywhere else. Steve's Bookstore won't have it because Barnes & Noble has the exclusive deal for about six months. But that was a deal that I accepted and got into because I'm like, I'm guaranteed to be in every Barnes & Noble. Yes, I will write that darn book. But that is a a movie studio asked me to uh, help reimagine an old J.M. Barry play. He's the guy who wrote Peter Pan, and it's a ghost play you know, written in the early 1900s. So it is dated, but it's got some cool stuff, cool enough stuff that Alfred Hitchcock, for years, for 30 years, he wanted to turn this into a movie and he never got it done. So this movie studio that has a publishing arm contacted me and it's funny, you know, we were talking and this is for all, all the writers out there. Remember I said earlier in the interview, whether or not it makes it or not, how Cain's Blood didn't sell that well. That's fine. People who read Cain's Blood are people who are in this company. So this, this Hollywood studio that has 30 productions going on right now and is doing all these really cool projects, two or three of the people in that company, they'd read Cain's Blood. And so, you know, the right people read the book. And they said, you know, this, this guy can write. Let's see. Let's throw this, this Hitchcock, J.M. Barry ghost thing at him and let, let's let him go to town, man, and write some cool stuff. And so they, they hired me to do that. It comes out in October. It's a pretty cool book. And that's called Mary Rose. Oh, and then as far as what I'm working on right now, uh, I'm working on a book set in old Japan, which is what we all call feudal Japan. The first samurai of non-Japanese origin who happened to be an, an African who came over as a bodyguard and within a year was a pretty major player and a samurai for the most powerful uh, warlord in all of Japan. So that's a true, That's a true story. So I've been working on that for about... Five months now. I spent three weeks in Japan this summer uh, doing research, which was super cool.
0: You don't do a lot of social media, but is there anywhere that you think of as your home base online? Where can
1: people find you? Where can people find me? Uh, they Where can, can they find you? They can find me at, at Starbucks in Westchester. They can find me. Uh, I have a Twitter. I have a Twitter account. <laughs> so that's Jeffrey underscore. You don't use that. Come on. Don't I use, use it a that. little bit. I was I was complaining about okay. my fantasy football team the other day. Uh, I, yeah, that was really, really interesting You know what I, just, <laughs> I got some stuff on there I got Twitter Oh dude, if you're asking me what I use I got Twitter, I got a Facebook I do the tweet, I got a MySpace You know uh, A MySpace, <laughs> that's great um, yeah, Are you on I got, LinkedIn? I got Instagram, that's growing And uh, yeah, you can If, you wanna, if you're want If you into that kind of thing Or go to my website, jeffreygirard.com. Send me a freaking email I'll be happy to talk there to you, all you. Yeah, I'm good at that. Those I'm good at.
0: There you go. Yeah. All right. <laughs> See, this is why. This is why you're so good at social media oh, because you just I'm get amazing. salty. <laughs> Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis, music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.